Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Madonna's version of American Pie, a song written and originally recorded by our guest in part two of today's episode of Songcraft, Don McLean. But first, we talk about some important transitions in songwriting history. Part one. You sound like you've got a cold. I do have a cold. I think you're kind of getting yeah, a little cold there, too. I have too, one, huh? too. I have an excuse. I have a toddler. Yeah. Um, so I don't know where you got yours, but mine comes in my door every day. I either got uh, mine from you last week, or I gave mine to you last week, and you gave it to your toddler. Maybe we should bring separate mics instead of just gathering around this one mic. But it's so bluegrass <laughs> how we, you know, gather around the old family microphone. You and I are like Johnny and June. <laughs> well, uh, you just keep a safe distance from me today, and we'll we'll both go home and take some uh, vitamin C and, and try to work this thing indeed, out. Indeed, indeed. So back. we'll, we'll better, sound better next time. Stronger everybody. than ever next time, yeah. you guys. Well, we're getting ready to talk to Don McLean in a little bit. Looking forward to getting into that conversation. And, you know, for people that aren't familiar with this particular stat, American Pie is the longest number one song in the history of Billboard number one songs. Yeah, eight minutes and 36 seconds. It's the kind of song that if it's playing when you pull up to the store and you got to go in and buy some stuff, <laughs> when you come back out, it'll still, still be playing. Yeah, and, and you can sort of feel that continuity. Um, but it, it got us thinking about, you know, what are the other, you know, specifically long songs yeah. that found their way to the top spot? So we decided to do a little research. Yeah. Um, and I, I decided to I, I decided to educate myself on the top three longest songs to ever hit number one on the Billboard charts. And, and Paul uh, did a little research on the, the top three shortest songs to ever hit uh, number one on the Billboard charts. So we Both thought it'd be of these fun topics to... uh, appropriate for our uh, respective attention spans. <laughs> you went for the long ones, and I, I went, well, what are the shortest ones? Right, right. So we decided we would share those with each other as a mutual uh, education uh, process. Yeah. So... Um, um, just for fun, we'll start with the with the long songs because we already mentioned that Don yeah. McLean has the, the the longest song to ever hit number one on the Billboard chart. Coming in at number two, which originally set the record for the longest song, was the Beatles' "Hey Jude" back in 1967. That was yeah. a little over seven minutes. Um, you know, and what's a little side story about that? Just just uh, bonus. My father was in the army at the time that song came out, and he was literally waiting for the plane that was going to take him to Vietnam. Wow. And on the radio, they were saying, we're about to play the Beatles' new single. And, and he and some of his fellow soldiers were gathered around the, the radio waiting to hear the Beatles' new single. And they were hoping, I hope we get to hear this song before the plane actually takes off. And I don't know, it's a long song. So maybe by the time it got pretty deep into it, they're like, maybe well, we'll never have to go it, to Vietnam. They, they heard the beginning. <laughs> and by the time the last chorus came around, they were all shot for desertion. <laughs> it's just too long. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, very long song. So, you know, you can go in the store and come out and American Pie will still be playing. You can yeah. go to Vietnam and come back from the <laughs> war and Hey Jude will still be playing. Uh, the, the third uh, longest song to ever hit number one on Billboard was Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations, wow. which was 1973. Um, so there you have it, the top three longest songs to ever hit number one on the Billboard pop chart. And for those of you who were wondering if you were going to hear Free Bird in that list, it wasn't a number one, but it does have the uh, classification of being the longest song ever. <laughs> Um, it is a long song um, but yeah so so for the three shortest ones um, I'll I'll be brief (laughs) but uh, you know the the shortest one ever actually and we talked about it on a Songcraft episode uh, Maurice Williams was a guest of ours and his song Stay with Maurice Williams and the Zodiacs clocked in at 137 wow Uh, pretty lean Uh, then you move up to uh, Teddy Bear by Elvis Mm, at 143 um a little bit of a longer longer stretch there. Hope you <laughs> hope you can handle all of it. Right. And then uh, Herman's Hermits with King Henry VIII uh, coming in at 149. Oh, the old I am Henry VIII, yes. I am. That's, uh, well, I don't think that one could have been any. Second verse, same as the first. We could not have stood that to be any longer, <laughs> I don't think. Yeah, I think that's an appropriate link. I think uh, it's it's song. it's cool that uh, that we have, uh, you know, talked to the songwriter of both the shortest and longest number one song in the wow. Billboard chart. We have now covered... All bases. That's pretty full circle. That's that's pretty great. You know, it, it strikes me that the um, the the longest songs all were recorded after the shortest songs. Huh. And you know, when you think about music and and what's acceptable and what's kind of standard on the radio and all that stuff, songwriting goes through these changes. It goes through transitions. You know, there's different times when um, you know the, there's different standards of acceptability. Yeah. Like I don't think there would be a song. Again, the Temptations was 1973. There hasn't been a song as long as that since. You know, so it's kind of like okay to do long for a while. It's okay right. to do short. Now we're sort of back to you know medium, I guess. Um, but one of the people that we talked to back when we did our um, holiday songs episode in December was Phil Springer. He's in his 90s now, and he's the guy who wrote Santa Baby. And we had a great conversation with him, but there was some of that stuff that ended up on the cutting room floor because, obviously, for that episode, we were just talking about Christmas songs. Right. But he is a guy who was a professional brill-building songwriter and started out in the pre-rock and roll era and then... Um, sort of transitioned into that new era. So he had written this song that was a hit for Frank Sinatra called How Little It Matters, How Little We Know, which definitely represents sort of that classic era of early, you know, Brill Building style songwriting. And then the world kind of changed. And so we asked him, you know, what was different? You know, what was it a different world as we transitioned from that classic Brill Building era of songwriters into a new pop era. Part two. Who cares to define what chemistry this is? Who cares with your lips on mine how ignorant bliss is? So long as you kiss me and the world around us shatters. How little it matters, how little we know. It completely changed it. The biggest publishers, who were giants and had unlimited power, were out of business. Hmm. They had to close down their offices because the public that had bought their songs was not there anymore. The only people that were really selling uh, were Presley, the Beatles, uh, 
Carol King and so forth. Yeah. And they did the kind of music that even if the old songwriters could write, nobody would have believed it. Hmm, right. Nobody would have even listened to them after that time, and that was called the Rock Revolution. Yeah. It changed the lives of everybody. It was quite a shock, because the older writers, for a while, after 1950s, uh, let's say, eight, were hanging around the real building because they couldn't believe it was happening. And they had music in their hands that nobody would listen to. And they said to each other, good songs are coming back, but they never did. Now, you may say, well, how did you manage to stay in the business? Well, I did so much studying of music that I could write any style, and I was still young enough so that I wasn't completely... I was in my early 30s. Right. I was... Even then, I was an old man. <laughs> because in the building, the publishers uh, were like kids of 18 and 19 years old. Yeah. And um, I managed to survive. Yeah. And there, there was uh, one company that stayed in business, and that was um, on the 11th floor. I can't even remember their names now, but uh, I remember the guy that was ahead of it, Freddie Beanstalk. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Hill and Range, that's the Hill name. Hill and Range, yeah. And they controlled Presley's uh, output. Yeah, right. So I went up there with uh, my then partner, who was a guy named Buddy Kay, and we played them a song and Presley recorded it. I bring you never ending, never ending, never ending, never ending, never ending, never ending love. Wow, that's actually fascinating and, and kind of sad, kind of poignant, you know, yeah. to think about these guys and, and their livelihood. And he said, we're standing there with music that nobody's going to hear. Yeah, yeah. It's like as culture moves on, there are there are uh, casualties. Right. There are people who are left behind. And it's one of those things that we actually think of as a very, very modern problem, um, how technology is pushing. I, I just read an article just a few minutes ago, actually, um, about a guy. He was talking about how this new era of driverless cars is going to put a bunch of truck drivers out of business. Yeah. And what a huge change that's going to be for the economy and you know for the unemployment rate in America. And I thought, you know, this is something that we've been dealing with generation after generation and and these guys who, who came up under a certain kind of songwriting a certain structure in the music business all of a sudden found themselves you know just adrift yeah yeah and you and you think about even how much like the arrival of an elvis presley and a buddy holly kind of challenged the old notions of songwriting and by the time don mclean comes out with american pie in the early 70s He's already looking back, even as he's sort of challenging yeah. <laughs> how long a single can be. He's already looking back at the days of of Buddy Holly and kind of yeah. this idea of, you know, this cultural change. The day the music died kind of becomes this metaphor for how uh, moving from from innocence to a world that's more complicated, a world that's that's in flux. Um, so it's 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 wild to kind of even think about. You, you've got that that first era of popular songwriting. You've got the rock and roll era, and quickly moves into sort of more of this kind of folk rock and psychedelic yeah. and all these changes that are happening. It's almost like culture 
accelerates as it moves forward. We well, you know who really lost out in the 70s were the session musicians. They really should have gotten paid for five songs <laughs> for playing on American Pie because that was about five King Henry VIII. <laughs> That's true. That they That's plowed true. through there. It takes a lot of teddy bears to fill up an American <laughs> Pie. Wow. <laughs> that, that's something for a bumper sticker. Yeah. But I, I tell you what I think this whole segment really proves is that when it comes to songcraft, there's no such thing as a cutting room floor. It's all magic. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let's uh, let's go take some Sudafed and uh, some Dayquil and, and uh, we'll listen back to this when our, uh, when our sickness has subsided and wonder what the heck we were talking about. Sounds good. Part three. Best known as the writer and performer of American Pie, Don McLean and his songs have hit the Billboard Pop, Country, and Adult Contemporary charts nearly 20 times. Staples of his catalog include Vincent, which hit number 12 in the U.S. and landed at the top of the U.K. chart, Castles in the Air, which charted twice with different versions in 1971 and 1981, and And I Love You So, which was covered by Bobby Goldsboro, Perry Como, Johnny Mathis, Glenn Campbell, and Elvis Presley. McLean's compositions have also been covered by Madonna, Fred Astaire, James Blake, Chet Atkins, Garth Brooks, George Michael, Harry Connick Jr., Josh Groban, Ed Sheeran, and others. He was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2004 and received the BBC Folk Music Lifetime Achievement Award in 2012. American Pie was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2002 and was named one of the top five songs of the 20th century by the Recording Industry Association of America and the National Endowment for the Arts. McLean has recorded 19 studio albums, and the most recent is Botanical Gardens. So bye-bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry Don, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Nice to be here. Yeah, it's great to speak with you. Um, you've got a new record, uh, Botanical Gardens, which is your first album of original material since Addicted to Black back in, in 2009. Um, why was now the, the right time to release um, new music, to, to, to do a new album? You know, what happens is that, especially in my case, where I am not someone who has like a major label deal that's been going on for decades, like uh, Leonard Cohen or Dylan or Paul Simon or any of these people, uh, I say to myself, who cares? You know? <laughs> Why do this again? Yeah. You know, kill myself to do something uh, that no one's going to care about? You know, forget it, you know? <laughs> but uh, I was writing uh, a lot of songs that I liked, and uh, having fun with it. Yeah. And I've got a great group of, uh, of musicians, and so I was trying them out with them as we were traveling, and uh, um, one of my guys does production work for me, and he did a very nice track of Botanical Gardens, and I really liked it, and I changed a few things. So <laughs> before I know it, I had three or four tracks done. You know, I was recording now like Kate Smith used to come in, you know, and just sing the vocals. And, right, right. Uh, the tracks were all made. But um, I always do everything from scratch. But now I had three or four tracks, and they were good. And I was turned on. So I said, you know what, I'm going to keep going. So sure. then, we got the ba- then we got the band in the studio and recorded six or seven more. And before you know it, I had a dozen tunes. Oh. And uh, then I put uh, Last Night When We Were Young as the ending. Right. And because uh, I love that song. 
And uh, I'm a, a lover of the English language and beautiful melodies and uh, all the various things that seem to be disappearing, uh, romance, mm. uh, drama, uh, all the different aspects of performing yeah. um, that have gone now because we're in, you know, it's just sort of a sensory assault in your face <laughs> right. at every second. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I'm 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 of the old, I guess traditional school. Right. Right. Say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even that idea kind of uh, maybe gives a little insight into the a title like botanical gardens. You know, maybe the record's a bit of an oasis in in the you know spectrum of of the music of today. What um you know what inspired you you know to to come up with that title both for the song and the album. You know, there's the the lead off track botanical gardens, which kind of sets the tone for the album. I take a walk. In botanical gardens And look for the faces Of the pretty young girls Just like the flowers That bloom all around me I fall in love In this colorful world well, what, what inspires you, um, you know, well, people, that image? you know, people, uh, you know, you'll find, say, that anybody who writes a script or a song or a poem or whatever you have a the germination of something in you and you, if you're able to get past yourself and just follow follow the idea mm. um, as if you don't even exist huh. um, it will take it will tell you what it has to say hmm. And I've heard that too, and it sounds like a lot of California bullshit, but it really is true. <laughs> right. It will. It, you, you follow these things. I, I almost say like I take, I take the songs in on my radio. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a radio antenna, and they come to me. Um, like I'm listening to some transmission somewhere, and I'm writing it down like a telegraph operator. Yeah. Wow. Actually, I'm very lazy. You know, I mean, things, <laughs> things come to me. When they're ready, I don't. I'm not one of those people that gets up every day and says, "I have to write a song today." Right, you know? <laughs> right, right. right. I, I'd rather go out and shovel my horse's stall out or something and <laughs> think about the world and think about things, you know, rather than put myself in school. Right. You know, that's right. the thing. It's like school. I never liked school. Yeah. And I and I and I never liked it. And I don't want to go back to school right. you know so. you're in good company here <laughs> <laughs> you know and so i just but you know that's why if you look back in 1960 and you see how people dressed i was 15 years old right i mean i was born in 1945 yeah and i was already wanted to be a folk singer and a blues singer and all this stuff and i was born in a pretty upscale neighborhood and uh the kids that i knew all of them were on the fast track to new york city and a job and a family and you know they were churchgoers and they were uh, they were the, the really the old-fashioned white pillars of the community and i was already out of the barn you know, I was out of the barn running free. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. If, if if we look back at those early days, I understand that you got into folk music as a kid, and, and you ultimately ended up befriending some members of the Weavers while you were still a teenager. Right. 
that was the most interesting. That journey actually brought me into everything. Hmm. And it was all because I, I didn't have a... My father was a Scottish, and he was very strict and rather abusive in some ways by today's standards. Hmm. Um, and he was already jumping up and down on one leg about the fact that I was interested in music. He didn't want any music anywhere near me. Huh. Yeah. Um, and, of course, that made it extremely desirable. <laughs> right. And, um, you know, I, as I tell people, you know, you can't imagine what Bo Diddley did to my father, you know. Mm, right. Playing, playing Bo Diddley in my house <laughs> in 1960. Uh, and my father, you know, with his double-breasted pinstripe suit going off to work uh, and hearing... You know, who do you love? I'm telling you, it was a <laughs> study in contrast. Right. You know, I didn't know anything about um, what was happening or why he didn't like Bo Diddley. <laughs> right. You know, I didn't know why. Yeah. yeah. It seemed like, I love Bo Diddley. Why don't you like him? You know? Yeah. Right. It's the right. worst thing my father could ever think of, you know? Yeah. So anyway, I I loved this, the Weavers, and uh, I loved a lot of different people, Elvis and... Buddy Holly, all the Everly Brothers, all the all the things that kids loved, I was crazy yeah, about. Yeah. Especially Buddy Holly. Mm, right. But uh, the Weavers were interesting because they were blacklisted, and I would read about them. There was very little to read, by sure. the way, almost nothing. Yeah. And I read that they were that they lived in Manhattan. So, you know, one day I said, I'm going to call Fred Hellerman. I'm going to see if he's in the he's the guitar player and singer in the right. Weavers, and I'm going to see if he you know, answers the phone. So I get a number, you know, and I dialed the number, and he answered the fucking phone. Wow. And, <laughs> and he was so nice to me. It was amazing. You know, yeah. he's just so nice. And so I uh, had a relationship, a phone relationship with him, and uh, huh. soon there were others. I, you know, I called Eric Darling, who fascinated me, the way he played guitar and banjo and all. So, on. so Eric said... But this time I'm about 16. So yeah. why, not, why don't you come into New York and bring your guitar and we can sit in my living room and play. Wow, wow that's amazing. So because I took the initiative of picking up the phone, yeah. I found myself in one of my idols in, my, in his living room. That's amazing. And I'm asking him every question I can think of about his guitars and how he plays this and how he does that wow. and this and that. We got to be pretty good friends. I mean, yeah. So it, it built from there, yeah. and I, I got to know all of them, and they all kind of adopted me. They all, you know, saw me as sort of part of their family, and I ended up being represented by Harold Leventhal then by the end, by the, in the early '60s, '63, right? Uh, who was a major manager. Right, you know, sure. It's a big, really, he's the subject of uh, uh, Mighty Wind, the movie. That's, <laughs> right, that's yeah. the Harold Leventhal story. Yeah, really. yeah. I was in the middle of all that. Yeah. Right. Just from a phone call. And you mentioned the word initiative, and that I'm kind of hearing that as a theme. You know, you sound like a pretty, you're a pretty fearless young guy. And, uh, you know, by the time your debut album, Tapestry, came out in 1970, you know, I've heard stories that that was rejected dozens of times by record labels. Was it that same sense of initiative and, and fearlessness, kind of a sense of purpose, that gave you the hope and encouragement yeah, to kind of keep pressing on? Yeah, I was goddamn well going to do it, you know? Yeah. 
You know what yeah. I mean? And there was nothing that was going to stop me, and that's all there was to it. And I didn't care <laughs> what I had to do to do it. I didn't give a damn. I was going to do it, and that was it. And, uh, you know, I didn't care. And yeah. I knew that album was, it was an important album to me. Hmm. I had worked very, very hard on it through many years, writing these songs laboriously and slowly, and they represented, if you will, kind of a template for every album I would make afterwards, yeah. Yeah. which is a variety of songs that are connected in some distant fashion to some concept or other. Yeah. And that was my idea. So it was a, a not a concept record, but it was, in mm. a sense. Hmm. Yeah. But rather than having the, the songs be on the same level, like Moonlight Sinatra, a great record by Frank, every song has the word moon in it or moonlight. That would be that would be connecting, mm-hmm. you know, on a horizontal level. Mine were integrated up and down in a, mm-hmm. in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> to the idea of, of tapestry. So not only was the tapestry about the environment, but the tapestry was about all these different forms of music and kinds of um, emotion and some political and some strictly romantic. Well, even though uh, the version of your song Castles in the Air, which appears on the Tapestry album, hit the top 40 on what was then called the Easy Listening Chart, um, your first real success as a songwriter came with Bobby Goldsboro's top 10 Easy Listening cover of And I Love You So, which also landed on both the pop and country charts in 1971. And yes, I know how lonely life can be The shadows follow me And the night won't set me free But I don't let the evening get me down Now that you're around me And you love me too That's a song that went on to be covered by Johnny Mathis, Harry Connick Jr., Glenn Campbell, and many others. It was Perry Como's last Top 40 pop hit, as well as the last track on Elvis Presley's final album, Elvis in Concert. What is it about that song that you think has made it such an enduring classic? Well, it it was a song that I tried to write in the style of songs that I heard when I was a a little guy uh, listening to the radio all day um, when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And uh, so we're talking about like 1952, three, four, around in there. Yeah. And um, I love popular music and I wanted to write a popular, I wanted to write a song like that. But then all (laughs) of a sudden Johnny Mathis was recording it and Andy Williams and... uh, you know, and 50 other of those, yeah. uh, you know, crooners who were, who would always sing whatever was on the charts that, you know, appealed to them, they would take a shot at it. And that's the way it had always been, you know. Yeah, yeah. They always did it. All the pop singers would do all the new pop, you know, standards. They take, they have their version of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that's, that was a big surprise of the song. was, And then, but that, went on for like, you know, the song album came out in 70, so recordings of, Amer- of And I Love You So were going on for 71, 2, 3, 4, sure. all of a sudden, the big one came with, uh, out of the blue, with uh, Perry Como, who uh, had a number one and sold a million. Yeah, amazing. amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. 
Well, I don't know if anybody in, in an interview has ever asked you about American Pie before. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have, but, but we'll, I'm really kind of annotated at this age, so I probably forgot it this, all. This, yeah, if, if you want to just like cue, cue your own recording at this point and just like press play. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I ought to have a chip buried in my mouth. Um, well, your second album in 1972 turbo boosted your career thanks to the single American Pie. I started singing bye bye Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Them good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye and singing this'll be the day that I die. This'll be the day that I die. At over eight and a half minutes, it was the longest song to hit number one on the Billboard pop chart. Um, when you were recording that, were you imagining that it would be an album track, or did you actually intend from the beginning to issue it as a single and kind of challenge the parameters of radio? No, no, I wanted it to be a... I was really only interested in making albums. I wasn't mm-hmm. interested in... I didn't even know that I'd ever have a single, okay? Yeah. I had people around me at the record company and in management who had different ideas, and at the agency, William Morris, they had different ideas about what was going on, but I liked people like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, I liked folk records that were, you know, had a lot of different songs on them, and I liked, uh, I liked Nilsson, who almost never had a hit, you know, and he made these beautiful albums. I liked stuff like that. I didn't really uh, think about hits. Um, I didn't realize that careers were hit-driven. You know, right. I was very ignorant, very ignorant of everything, really, right. except uh, how to write these, have these ideas, and and how to sing and play guitar and and uh, write these songs. And I had um, the funny thing was, although there was this ignorance, there was at the same time a, a very clear certitude. Mm-hmm of what I wanted the record to sound like and how I wanted to sound on it and what I wanted to sing and what I wanted to say. Yeah. So I would a lot of times be very threatened by producers who would come up with what I thought were very wrong ideas. Sure. And instead of gently, you know, saying that's not a good idea, I'd probably get annoyed. You know, yeah. I mean, that's just a really stupid idea. You know? <laughs> so, and so that didn't... That didn't go over big. You know? <laughs> right, right. You know, to to think philosophically for a moment, you know, I and both Scott and I have read in different interviews that, that you're not necessarily eager to go into a bunch of interpretation of the lyrics of American Pie, um, which I understand um, because as a creator, sometimes you don't want to you you don't you don't always want to decode the messages that you're sending. But do you think that the songs, like, true internal meaning lies with the intent of the composer, or does its meaning really kind of lie in whatever the listener actually hears and interprets? Well, in that case, I think you've hit upon something that is correct. It is really what, it's how it strikes people, mm-hmm. because it's, it, is, it is not meant to be cutely oblique. It is meant to be a poem, yeah. and, and it's meant to be, but not a nonsense poem. Hmm. And yet, not a, a really a, not an understandable poem because what I'm trying to do, and I have said this a lot of times, <laughs> what I'm trying to do is is create a dream, hmm. and in, in dreams and a movie, 
at the same time, because a dream is a movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, your dreams are in technicolor. Your dreams are, but you don't quite understand them. But and so that was the that was the lyric idea. If anybody really understood what I do with music, I'd get a lot more awards than I do, <laughs> because I really set the bar very high, and I try to do different things that are completely different every time. Sure. Rather than, you know, staying in the same zone that everybody understands and ringing the bell once in a while. Yeah. I don't, I blow out the whole zone and go somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. So this was a one-time thing. It was an idea I had. It turned me on. I had so much fun thinking about it. And I came up with this. And it was great because it made fun of all these Dylan songs and all these songs by, you know, who, Paul is Dead and all this. Yeah. You know, Carly Simon, you know, who did you write? You're so vain about it right. that anybody gives a fuck, you know? <laughs> I was just having fun with it, yeah, you know, right. and laughing at At the same time, I was doing other things, too, you know, talking about politics, talking about politics through music. Yeah. When, talking and, about um, the generation gap, in a sense, which was, we were paying for it now, because now we were being you know, thrown into the, uh, into the, um, what would you call it? We were cannon fodder for World mm. War, for Vietnam now. Right, right, yeah. And it was serious. Yeah. You know, and so, you know, it went from being rock and roll and hula hoops to being Vietnam and getting killed, you know, and it was, right. there's a lot, there was a, a lot I wanted to capture, and you just can't do that with a prosaic, didactic, approach we've said before that american pie is a morality song in a sense and there are a number of religious themes throughout the lyric uh, you know do you have faith in god above if the bible tells you so can music save your mortal soul i saw satan laughing with delight the church bells were all broken and then of course the the final verse says and the three men i admire most the father son and the holy ghost they caught the last train for the coast the day the music died um in some ways, was this song also a religious commentary? Well, um, that's a nice question. Um, I'm a philosopher, and I'm, I studied philosophy in college, which is what got me started. And, of course, religion is philosophy, economics is philosophy, politics is philosophy. Yeah. It's all philosophy. And so... There has to be, in order for people to survive, you know, as a culture, you have to believe in something. Yeah. Sure. You have to believe in something. You can't be a country that doesn't believe in anything. Yeah. If you're a communist, you know, you believe in the communist economic ethos. You believe in Marxism yeah. and Lenin and all that stuff. And if you're an American, you believe in democracy and you believe in you know, your founders or whatever, and you're a Christian, from, basically, and mm-hmm. you believe in God. It's on the, it's on the money, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you have to believe in something, and part of American Pie is the, is the fact that, you know, there are people aren't, don't believe in anything. Sure. So, there's a lot there. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, you know, your follow-up single off that American Pie album was Vincent. Um, went to number 12 on the U.S. chart, hit number one in the U.K. It was actually even a, a bigger hit there than American Pie was. Now I understand What you tried to say to me And how you suffered for your sanity And how you tried to set them free They would not listen did not know how perhaps they'll listen now you know, we know the song was about Vincent van Gogh and it kind of references the starry night uh, you know painting but tell us a little more about the inspiration for writing that one and, and what made it feel like the right follow-up well it was the right follow-up because it was um, a beautiful thing and it was also radically different from American Pie, yeah. and therefore it at least got a chance to put in front of a massive audience a little bit of what I was about. Right. Mm. Yeah. Right. You know, if, if, if I had wanted to go on the other route, I would have done, you know, a hotter version of Everybody Loves Me Baby or something <laughs> like that and right. put it out or... You know, but uh, well, a hit kind of buys you some equity then to to you know put something forth then that you say, okay, I'm going to challenge you further now. There was that, and then there was the idea of just getting you know having this opportunity really to put a uh, a very fine song uh, out on the airwaves for people to hear. This is you know whatever followed that record was going to get heard. Right. (laughs) Um, But I had no. Um, I don't have a good time belonging to anybody's group or anything. Um, I'm a bit of a a contrarian in some ways, Hmm. and less now than I perhaps was when I was young. But, you know, if people expected hit records from me, I I wasn't going to give them to them. Uh You know, and if people didn't, I was. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know why I'm wired up that way, but I just don't like being feeling manipulated. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even though everybody goes into show business, you know, and has a chance of getting somewhere, or just you know, jump at the chance to to do anything, I, I don't. Yeah. I, yeah. You know, I'm. I have things I want to do. I made my mind up that what I wanted to do was have these ideas. And, you know, if I only made a, a two or three records, um, as long as I could get the ideas out there and, you know, and, and say that I, I made the records, I'd, at least somebody would know that I, you know, I existed. Yeah. You know, I, I, was, I was a singer. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I didn't really have any great hopes for myself. Hmm. You know, talking about that idea of of self-concept or public expectation or or whatever, you know, in terms of once you have that kind of success and maybe people want to put you into a certain box or or whatever, you know, I think about the song uh, Dreidel from your third album, which was a a top 20 pop hit. And, you know, that's a song that um, kind of to me sounds like... uh, this idea of, you know, feeling like a spinning top and, and the, the very last, you know, the, the ending saying, I'm lost. Uh, at that point in your life, did you did you feel like success was kind of giving you that sense of chaos and feeling that out of control? That song perfectly illustrates what I just said. Mm, yeah. 
you know, that although other people might think this is a glorious opportunity, uh, for me, um, I felt I had uh, handcuffs on or something, you hmm. know? Yeah. Yeah. It was a a very, very important time in my life, that third record, because I realized once again, you know, I'm on my own, mm. you know, mm. nobody cares, um, nobody knows what I'm, nobody really don't, they really don't care when you're, when you're well known and you have to get out on stage and perform, audiences do not care what you're going to <laughs> Like a spinning top or a dreidel The spinning don't stop when you leave the cradle You just slow down Round and around this world you go Spinning through the lives of the people you know We all slow down Skipping ahead a little bit, in 1978, you released the Chain Lightning album, which was produced by Larry Butler in Nashville. Um, you wound up scoring a hit with a cover of Roy Orbison's Crying, as well as the original song It's Just the Sun, which was a top 20 adult contemporary hit. As a songwriter, talk about recording in Nashville, which is a real kind of songwriter's town, as opposed to how you'd worked previously. Well... I should have made more records with Larry Butler. Mm -hmm. I wish I had. Um, because the two that I did make, I think, are very, very good records. They're very nice to listen to. There's some really good songs on there. And I discovered that the people there were my my kind of people. Mm. Right. They were they were country meaning not city, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, I'm not city, you know, I'm not country, like, you know, Garth Brooks is country, but I'm I'm not city either, you know. I, you know, and they could, they could play acoustic guitars and get slap pick and finger pick and do all the things I love. They, they knew how to sing in real good four-square harmony, yeah. and I became... Very good friends with a lot of musicians, including the Jordanaires, uh, lifelong friends with the Jordanaires. And, uh, you know, it's just, and the studios were great, and the yeah. musicians were never really asked to do the kinds of things that I asked them to do on those records. Huh. Yeah. But they're great artists. Yeah. You know, Bob Moore. I mean, Bob Moore. You know, I turned him loose on that song, uh, It's a Beautiful Life. Right. And I just said, look, Bob, I want you to play anything you want. And when I say, and I see, I want you to hit this note right here. <laughs> and I'm going to say, it's a beautiful life. And then I want you to go back and do anything you want. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and after it was over, it was this cool thing that I had in my head. You know, it came out so great. And yeah. And Bob said to me, you'll never know, Don, how many times I've had my hand slapped. Mm, huh. You know, because I didn't play the right note, and here you are letting me play anything I want. Yeah, so, that's cool. You know, as long as I end up on that one note when you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Like, I just, I'm just asking for one note. Other than that, do your thing. <laughs> that's right. Oh, so I, I had a whole different uh, approach toward my music than they'd ever seen before. Sure. Mm. And they loved, they loved me, and they got along great with me. Because they were yeah. always looking, when's Don coming back? You know? <laughs> right, right. We have fun with that guy. 
<laughs> well, both both Scott and I are Nashville natives, so we will always uh, resonate with anything anyone has to say positively about that town. <laughs> right. um, you, you know, you continued to record in Nashville. Your 1981 album, Believers, was recorded there, um, featured a new version of Castles in the Air, which was kind of a, a slower arrangement from the original. Say- What is it, you know, what is it about that song that you kind of keep coming back to? Well, the first arrangement was really nervous, and it was it was not right. Hmm. Uh, the first recording, I was not I was not ready, and the producer was not uh, of a level to be able to produce that properly. Um, Jerry Corbett did some good things on Tapestry, and certainly supported me in what I wanted to do. Um, but when Butler heard that, I said, Don, I really want to do this song again. It needs to be done again. And we had a hit record with it. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to think about a song, you know, kind of, you know, needing some more time maybe in the oven. You know, it was written, you know, a time before and, and you gave it a shot. But now you realize, hey, this, this song, could, we, we could come, come back at this and, and maybe it'll be more ready now. We'll be more ready for it. Well, songs, um, at least the way I feel about it, um, has to be timeless. Hmm. You don't write a song, you know, um, as much as I like a song like She Loves You, yeah, 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 that's a very time, that's a very time-sensitive song. Sure. Be very, right. But A Castle's in the Air, it can be recorded anytime. It can be yeah. recorded now. Um, oh, She Loves You could be recorded anytime now, too, but I mean, it's just, it has a feel of right. the early 60s and the early Beatles. For sure, um, yeah, feels like its era. Well, you went on to record a lot in Nashville, and Nashville really embraced you. I mean, it was Garth Brooks that inducted you uh, into the Songwriters Hall of Fame in 2004. But even as you've been embraced by country music, we also see you popping up in hip-hop. Um, Drake's song, Doing It Wrong, which features Stevie Wonder, includes lyrics from two of your songs, The Wrong Thing to Do and When a Good Thing Goes Bad, from 1977's Prime Time album. Does it surprise you to see how your music has been embraced and sometimes reworked by those in, in different genres? Well, my attempt at it, you know, I don't, maybe I don't succeed. Look, I don't, you, I'm not an expert. I mean, I just, I know thousands and thousands and thousands of songs. I mean, from every genre. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when I hear that Tupac Shakur uh, loved Vincent more than any song he ever heard, I mean, hmm. you know... Uh that matters to me because you know we are it's a beautiful thing really when when politicians always uh try to separate us right you know and 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 make one put one against the other and then you see that here you have a, a a super white boy like me coming up with a very um romantic and very unusual song and here's this uh, black tough guy who sings gangster music who who adores the song. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. important. That's yeah. important. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for people to know that because 
you know, we're all Americans, and we're all, you know, we're all in this country together, and uh, and, and it's, we got to realize these it's these people in, in power are always trying to put wedges between yeah. us. That's how they keep their their power. Um, just in looking at your entire catalog and, and the albums that you've done and, and your body of work, um, you know, I think any songwriter would probably give their left arm to have written a song like American Pie. I mean, certainly that is uh, that is a blessing that, that few songwriters will ever experience. But as a writer and a creative person who, who has written uh, tons and tons and tons of songs, um, what is the the kind of downside to writing a song that's that huge and that iconic in terms of getting attention for the rest of your body of work? Well, it's like having a giant tree in a, in a garden. You know, it, it cuts cuts out a lot of light. Huh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it takes a while for for other things to catch up. But at this age, and with the world the way it is now. And music in the state that it is, and entertainment being what it is, uh, to be at my age and have something that the whole world loves and knows, mm. and that leads them back now to the albums and the YouTubes and the TV specials and the concert footage and the interviews yeah. and so on and so forth, is a blessing. Sure, so sure. Whereas before it might have been something that was somewhat you know, uh, double-edged. Yeah, huh. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You know, and with that tree garden image, you answered that question like a great songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, I do think metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> well, Don, thank you uh, for the um, years of, of great music, and, and uh, congrats on the Botanical Gardens album, and we really appreciate you taking some time thank to talk to us. Thank you very much. I I enjoyed speaking to both of you very much. Good questions and thoughtful, and uh, thank you for that. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. 